On this episode, we're going to hear from two members of the classic mid-70s pub rock band The Cursal Flyers, Graham Douglas and Will Birch, who each went on after The Cursals to make power pop history. Douglas with Eddie and the Hot Rods, for whom he wrote the UK top 10 hit Do Anything You Wanna Do, released in July of 1977, and Birch with The Records, whose single Starry Eyes almost made the top 40 in the US in 1979. The records were formed in 1977 by Birch and singer-guitarist John Wicks, who had basically taken Graham Douglas's place in the last version of the Cursal Flyers. The records released three albums between 1979 and 1982. Graham Douglas made two excellent albums with Eddie and the Hot Rods, Life on the Line and Thriller. Let's hear what they have to say about the roles that they played in power pop history. Basically, in the Kersals, we started off as an English version of Flying Burrito Brothers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did a, did a tour or two. Uh, actually, we did a European tour with them. And, um, you know, at the time, we, we were, our, our genre was country rock, really. Trouble was that... Uh, the countryside of it became a little bit uh, overtaken by our first hit single, uh, Little Dishino. Mm-hmm. That was going too pop for my for my taste um, because I I was unwilling to go full top of the pops there, full silly suits and um, and uh, stuff like that. I, I always wanted to be, my, my influences were always rock, country rock, and, you know, R&B. Um, I, I was never really that involved with trying to be a pop band. I mean, those, those sorts of songs were, were my favourite songs. Those were the sorts of songs that I wanted to write. I was always trying to try to toughen up the Kersals to to you know to to try and be a little bit heavier than a a country a country band. I I when when we did the tour with um, Fly Burrito Brothers, I mean I I, I loved them when they had uh, Grand Parsons yeah. because Grand Parsons to me was. Somebody who was eclectic, and I've always tried to be 
eclectic in, in my songwriting. The way I write songs is that I write a song and try and aim it at a certain field, a certain style of music that I, I particularly like. I mean, I, I, can, I can write, you know, folk. I can write R&B. I can write, you know, straight... I, I can even write one or two reggae tunes, but, I mean, that's not my genre, really. I, I'm, I'm happy when I, I write uh, eclectic songs that appeal to, you know, quite a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, the first Kurzels album, one or two of the songs that I liked, that I, I was trying to make heavier were things like pocket money you know po- pocket money for example was was something that i i thought can i make this so that the jay girls band would do it because i you know i mean jay, jay girls band were were one of my favorites as well so i would i was like you know i i'm always a bit crossover i i don't want to be uh, I don't want to be a country, don't want to be R&B, don't want to be pops. I, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a bit of a rocker to start with. I want to keep the hardness to it and, you know, the, the dance aspect to it as well. I mean, when I, when I grew up, you know, we, 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 we would go to uh, church youth club dances and, youth club dances, and the ones that I wanted to dance to were the, you know, the, the, the fast ones. I also like dancing to the, the Tamla songs as well. I mean, I was, I was always a great fan of Otis and, and uh, you know, those, those sorts of dance songs. So I, I've always been uh, open to all sorts of, influences if if we want to talk influences do anything you want to do was uh borrowed from the feel of the east street band uh bruce springsteen has been a major a major influence on me and i've always uh respected his his way of uh trying to trying to write songs that appeal to, you know, not not rock songs, not pop songs, not any sort of label type of. I mean, you know, the East Street Band are a fucking great band. I I, I can't I can't think of a, a better band in terms of how to play for three hours and make the audience want three hours more. How they do it is it is beyond me, but um, I you know I've managed to see them a couple of times and walked out of the concert sort of drained because they've they've given me the energy to actually sit there and uh, and or stand there and 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 jump up and down. Other 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 influences, Grateful Dead. I mean, Grateful Dead have been you know, magic to me. I mean, they, the way they've combined 
all sorts of influences and made it their own. Jerry Garcia's guitar playing, I've always tried to pick his melodic style and and play melodically as well in 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 his style really. I'm, I mean, I also tried to simplify Jay Giles, for example, doesn't play flash solos, but he plays what what the song needs. The song almost defines the guitar to a certain extent. When I when I first joined the Hot Rods, I I was given you know Ed Ed Hollis told me take it away from Essex R and B and Doctor Feelgood and give it something more. So he he wrote a couple of a uh, couple of lines of lyrics of uh, stuff that sounded like the MC Five and the Stooges. And I had a basis of where he wanted uh, the Hot Rods to go. So on Life on the Line, I, I tried my best to write melodic rock that was dancing, you know, you could jump up and down to. And from, you know, from Charles Shah Murray, thought that that was the beginning of Power Pop. You know, I, I I'll, I'll go along with it. I was trying to trying to make make it available to not only I mean the the Hot Rods had a lot of female uh, fans basically because they had a pretty pretty lead singer, and he he was a uh, you know a very good a very good front man. And he he had lots of female fans. I mean, that's I I I wanted to write songs that weren't just boy songs, but they were rock songs that were available to you know girls as well. To a certain extent, I I I, I hoped that you know what what I turned out for Life on the Line was approaching that sort of area i mean dave higgs who who actually wanted me to join the band because he was uh finding it very very difficult to come up with and uh more songs along the lines of you know the first teenage depression album he he convinced ed hollis to to offer me the job you know i'm on on Life on the Line, I mean, the best song on that, to my mind, is Beginning of the End. One of the songs I love playing and one of his one of his best ever songs. But I mean, he he was he was a bit drained after that. He didn't he didn't much like touring. He didn't much like the top of the pop style either. But, you know, there you go. This is this is what had to be done in those days at that time.
Crystal Flyers and Eddie and the Hot Rods were both basically part of what has come to be called the pub rock scene, right? The, it, you know, and you already mentioned like Dr. Feelgood. And that, the pub rock scene seems like it kind of laid the groundwork for punk and new wave. And a lot of people from the pub rock bands ended up in punk and new wave bands. And so... You know, especially people outside of the UK, I don't I don't think a lot of people even understand that, that there was this whole pub rock scene that was really big, and that really was the beginning of punk and new wave in a lot of ways. And so even the Cursals, after you left, kind of tried to, you know, television generation was kind of trying to be a punk, punk rock song, right? Did it, when you joined Eddie and the Hot Rods, I mean, Teenage Depression is obviously considered kind of an early punk song in a lot of ways. Was it like, so where was the punk scene at when you joined Eddie and the Hot Rods? Was it much of a thing yet? And did, was it like you were joining a punk band? Or is, or were they, was it, was that the direction that they were looking at going in? Or mm, I, I think... If we go back to pub rock, I mean, pub rock was basically was basically what you would understand as bar bands music. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, every everybody learns their craft by playing to you know twenty people to start with, and then hundred and fifty people in a bar, and then maybe five hundred people in a bar. But I mean, in in London especially, which is where the pub scene started, they they were always small small bars. I mean, you could just about cram in two hundred and fifty people if you were lucky. So they they weren't even as big as bar bands uh, or bars as as you would understand it. I don't think. Mm-hmm. But there, you know, there there were. There were a lot of different styles of music played in 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 the pubs. I mean, there there was like every, every from about seventy seventy three to seventy onwards at seventy three onwards, there would be about I don't know fifty fifty different bars, fifty different pubs in the London area which had ba- bands playing. Some of them were charged to get in so that the bands could actually earn some money. Uh, some of them were the, the 
the um the landlord would would pay the um pay the band twenty quid just to play just to just so he could sell some beer. But I mean this this was small. Who who started off them? I mean it was one of the American bands, I think, Eggs Over Easy. Mm-hmm. They were uh, they were probably the pro progenitors of, of the band of the pub rock. And then there was um Brinsley Swartz. There was uh, Ace was uh, another one. Chili Willy, Ducks Deluxe. They they predated the Kurzels by a little a little bit. I mean we started to play in the London pubs just about at the height of uh, the popularity of, of the pub rock thing would have been about 74, I would think. Mm-hmm. So uh, was it surprising when Do Anything You Want to Do was a top 10 hit? Once we recorded it, I mean, I, I was pretty convinced that it was a, a hit song as, as soon as we'd put down the backing track because it had it had a rhythm. It had a feel, and you know, once once Barry put it put on his his vocal, all it needed was me to put on fifty million guitars, and it was there. And I I think the record company absolutely loved it. As soon as we played it to them, uh, a rough mix, they said, "We we like this. This is a killer one." So. You know, we we were quite happy about that. did a, a, a little a little uh, run at uh, the marquee which was uh, a great great club to pay play everybody's played the marquee and we did a week there and i think by the end of it the song was starting to hit the charts well the whole look of the album does help kind of place it in the punk rock era and and uh, even though the you know there are, I guess, there are punk elements, but it's just a great I, '70s rock album to me. I think we we actually played a little bit with uh, 
with the Ramones, and uh, you know, we'd, we'd uh, right. done a couple of tours, a couple of shows with the Ramones, and in France, they came up to us afterwards and said, "How how do you play the so many chords so fast?" <laughs> and I mean, DD was great. I I got on well with DD. He he was a lovely guy, and I said. That's that's what you do when you play fast, and he said, "I can't, I can't think of more than three chords uh, at that speed." And I said, "Well, practice hard, and and you'll get it." And I think, I think, on well, one one uh, one or two of their future albums, they had four chords, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. I, I think you know, we got on well with them, and uh, we, we we liked them a lot. They they were a good good bunch of good guys, as as you say, punk and pub rock were almost synonymous, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you know you talked about Bruce Springsteen. I remember reading about Joe Strummer saw Springsteen in '75, and well, he wasn't even Joe Strummer yet. I don't. I think he was still Woody, <laughs> but he. I remember, I remember he was very inspired by seeing Springsteen to completely change, uh, you know, the way he performed. And uh, I don't think I don't think a per, average person would think of Bruce Springsteen as being influential on punk rock. But here, you know, I know that he was influential on Joe Strummer, and you're saying he was very influential on you. And you can hear that in pub rock, you can, it's very similar, a lot of very similar styles. Yeah, Spring, Springsteen writes simple songs. I mean, they're not complicated songs. I mean, they feel they feel like he's he's just uh, opened his cupboard and you know pulled out a song that's been there for forever. That he writes timeless songs, and whatever whatever he writes, he writes for for people. I mean, I I've tried my best to try and to emulate that. In I mean, I I've never been a great lyricist in the same way that he appeals to a great majority of people. But I can do I can do the music. Uh, I uh, my my lyrics uh, need need a little little bit more polish but uh so i i try hard so when you were following up life on the line was there a lot of pressure to to follow it up with something good with something great and to have another hit album yeah the problem was that we'd um once we finished um life on the line we did about a year's solid touring Mm -hmm. and we had no opportunity to write any songs during the time we we'd um were touring with life on the line we had our manager which was ed hollis he he'd managed to uh decide he he didn't really like touring anymore so he wanted to be a producer full time so he managed to um managed to convince Island Records, our label, to fund his uh, little experimental label. 
the problem was that with with that was that the funding that Ireland allowed him was to come out of the hot rod royalties, which we we didn't know about at the time. We we were totally naive about all this. Mm-hmm. So when we came round to doing, which was a, a year later, after we'd decided the record company decided, hey hey, we need a new record. We needed uh, another hit single. I mean, they they tried to milk uh, life on the line through sticking out a two two more singles from the life on the line um, genre, you know, quit this town and life on the line itself. We were short of songs and we had a bit of a problem with with inspiration. Ireland had, had signed a, a distribution, distribution deal with EMI and allowed us the use of Abbey Road. Now, that, that was a lot of fun. if you can think of trying to record Eddie and the Hot Rods in in Abbey Road um, was was like uh, I mean we we walked through the door and our our jaws dropped because in in the next studio was Paul McCartney (laughs) and he he was he was wonderful I mean he he came in more than more than once uh, occasion, and uh, we were we were trying to record um, "Power and the Glory," yeah. which was uh, probably the, the the standout song on 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 that on that album. And he was saying, "Yeah, I like I like this song. It's a love song, isn't it?" And I was saying, "Paul, it's it's a." It's a political song. And he said, nah, can't see it. It's a love song. Tell you what, Linda will sing on it. You, that's, what, that's what you need. So he had uh, Linda singing back up on it, <laughs> which was lovely. We, I mean, we got on well with Paul and Linda. They were wonderful to us. We didn't have that many great songs on, on that album. We had maybe two or three good songs. I still think Pound the Glory was a hit single.
understand it Why you hate To treat me like a person Just can't wait For you to find the reason It's too late It's too late This might be your kingdom Seems that way to me At the time it came out, the scene in London was hardcore punk. And to a certain extent, we didn't have the the hardcore punk credentials anymore. We'd missed the boat. Also, we'd missed the boat by not touring back in in the States. I mean, we we should have, uh, because our first... UK US tour was pretty good with um, you know we we supported Ramones quite quite often and even people like um, Tom Petty and Robin Trower you know we we should have maybe got back and and played you know played to our strengths and and done another tour but I think we 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 missed the boat there as well. So to a certain extent, we were, we failed to take our opportunities. Oh, I, I love the Thriller album. I think it's great. I think it was a great follow-up to, to Life on the Line. And That's very kind of you to say so. I'm, I'm happy that, that somebody, uh, yeah, a few people like the album. And, yeah, we did our best. I push it on. I push it on a lot of people. I, I, I t- I've told a lot of people over the years. You know, you gotta, you gotta hear Thriller. It's almost as good as Life on the Line. You know, it's it was a, a good follow up to that record. It's funny that you know a couple years later, Michael Jackson comes out with his album called Thriller and kind of stole your album title there. Well, yeah. I mean, how can you beat plagiarists? I mean, the, you know, just just because you could dance a bit. <laughs> yeah but you know you said before that uh starry eyes was just the records were just i mean it, it you really can't hear it too that do anything you want to do is just almost like a template for for what i mean starry eyes yeah i i hear both songs in my head and you could totally hear how starry eyes is almost a rewrite of do anything you want to do yeah i mean will will never never apologize to me for that will Birch. but i i forgive him yeah i talked i talked to will a few weeks ago actually um but funnily enough funnily enough john 
uh, what was his name? John Wicks. John Wicks, yeah. I I, I met him um, a few years back over in L.A. And he, he you know, we, we uh, had a lot, lot of time for each other. I, I liked John. He was... He was a uh, nice guy. It was a great shame, great loss yeah. that he he was uh, cruelly taken from us. And he he said that uh, Will said he played doing anything you want to do. He said rewrite that bloody thing. <laughs> I I want a copy. I want a rewrite of that. So I I was uh, I was mollified. I don't know how aware you are of kind of the power pop cult that it really it's kind of a cult thing where there's several books written about it and there's always like lists and and there's lots of fans and collectors and you know it's funny that both do anything you want to do and starry eyes are going to be included on any chronology of power pop or any list of the classic power pop songs or if they made a box set both those songs are you know they're considered classics of the genre both of them are to a certain extent i i might claim i invented power pop but i i didn't really it, it's always been there i mean the yardbird shapes of things was a, a a power pop song yeah well a lot of power pop was a throwback to the 60s yeah yeah i mean the who invented it power yeah. pop but Eddie yeah. and the Hot Rods and Life on the Line is that it holds this really weird position in kind of the where everything was at the time and you know oh, what was sure. going on before and after. It's just a a weird spot in the the development of all that different of punk and new wave and power pop and all of that. Sure, I mean the the thing was for a songwriter who who's a musician who plays in a band, what what you write tends to be influenced by the style of the band and vice versa. What the songwriter writes influences the way the band plays. And when I joined the Hot Rods, it would be quite obvious that from the first album to the second album, there was quite a, quite a marked transition between straight um, harmonica-based R&B and more melodic, not hard rock, because that's a, that's a totally another thing, more riff-based thing anyway. But, you know, it's, it's fast, fast, popular, melodic, and um, whatever. I mean, so Power Pop, yeah, that was the... The junction between the two. For someone like me, who's a record collector and music fan, who's looking back, looking back on all of this, it seems like "Do Anything You Want to Do" and "Life on the Line" are historically significant and pretty influential, and that and and important in the timeline. That's how it. That's what it seems like looking back on it, at least. Well, I think you're you're right. I mean, I'm I'm very pleased that it's it's managed to reach so many people, and and so many people uh, think kindly of it, mm-hmm. um, which is basically what you you record songs for anyway. Is is for people to enjoy. 
and I'm glad that people enjoy it and have enjoyed it and will continue to enjoy it. It's a classic. <laughs> That's a, it's a rare thing in a lot of ways. And, and the people who know that record know that it's a classic <laughs> of the time, you know, so. Very kind of you to say so. I mean, you know, if if anybody ever said, what was your best vinyl record? I'd probably have to say Life on the Line. And, you know, Do Anything You Want to Do might be my best ever song. There are one or two other good ones, though, that I've managed to write. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
uh, what's interesting about you is since you go back to the Curse of Flyers, mm. what I was thinking about, it seems like it kind of went from pub rock to new wave and punk, and then power pop kind of on the other side of that, right? Kind of. Uh, are you talking about my my activity or the, or the scene in general? I guess the scene in general, yeah. Well, I wrote a book um, a few years ago called No Sleep Till Canvey Island, which was or is about uh, the the pub rock scene. And uh, towards the end, it obviously uh, goes off and starts talking about Stiff Records, for example, right. Nick Lowe, Ian Dury, all those kind of artists, Dr. Feelgood, who all came out of the pub rock scene, but all went into what is, can be described as sort of new wave slash punk slightly. But not punk rock as in the Sex Pistols, but perhaps more, um, a bit more down to earth. Maybe some of the early groups, you know, I don't know, like the MC5, maybe um, the Stooges, more than more than the, the then new punk groups. But uh, punk uh, really uh, shook things up here in London. I mean, I know there was a scene in New York at CBGBs with the Ramones and Talking Heads, etc. But in London. The pub scene continued, but it was past its heyday. You know, if you take the, the peak of that pub rock scene, I guess the peak year was probably 74, 1974, when Feelgood, Dr. Feelgood really broke through. That was when my group, the Curzel Flyers, started playing, and Nick Lowe's group, Brinsley Schwartz, broke up. And then shortly after, Ian Dury's group, uh, Kilburn and the High Roads broke up. So by early 75, a lot of those groups were, were no longer. And then sort of in the slipstream of, of pub rock came the punk thing. And, of course, it was musically entirely different. I'm not suggesting there was a similarity of music or even attitude. But what there was, uh, there was an, an infrastructure had been established, you know, whereby the punk, incoming punk groups could sort of take advantage of this well, certain parts of the pub rock scene in London that had been set up in the in the in the previous few years, and uh, the, the pub rock revolution really was that it brought the artists closer to the audiences, and uh, because they were playing in sweaty little dives, um, and it also brought the artists closer to the music rock music media because all of the you know the writers from the music magazines of the day that were incredibly influential, big circulations, um, got to meet uh, the artists face-to-face in, in a tiny pub. So it was it was a complete revolution as a sort of antidote to the arena circuit, you know, and prog rock and all of that. So it was, it was a big change. Um, but musically, um, I think after the Curzel Flyers broke up, I'd met... John Wicks, who who was a late member of the Curzels, he came in at the last minute on rhythm guitar, did about three or four months of touring with us, and then we broke up. And John had co-written a song with our singer Paul, written the, the melody. Paul had written the lyrics, and I, I'm more of a lyric writer, you know, looking for someone to write with. And John had written this fantastic uh, song. It was called Moral Fiber, and uh, I thought it sounded like the Move. I thought, wow, this is good. So John and I started writing and then we started looking around for musicians and to form what became the records. So I suppose musically influences by this time, 
John was a big fan of Badfinger and the Beatles, obviously. Uh, Jerry Rafferty, he liked Steeler's Wheel. Uh, I was obviously loved, you know, Big Star and the Raspberries um, uh, and, of course, Badfinger. So that was our sort of inspiration, those acts I've just named. And also at that time, Cheap Trick were becoming very popular. They, they were very good as well. So that was our kind of musical uh, target, if you like, that we, we, we followed, you know. Right, yeah. I don't know if that explains how we kind of came about, but and of course the London pub scene was still going strong. So actually, you know, punk rock had kind of come and gone really on the street level because although there were a lot of people walking around still with safety pins through their noses and, and spiky hair, which was great and really an exciting scene, the the punk groups frizzled out fairly quickly. I mean, the Clash. Um, we, when I was in the Castle Flyers in 76, we had the Clash open for us, a, a, quite a big venue in London. And I, when they walked in the, in the, in the building, we were sound checking. And uh, the minute they walked in, you know, I sensed there was something happening, something new was coming along. The Clash went on to big things, of course, in America, etc. But a lot of the really early groups, like the Sex Pistols, they, they were broken up by it. By the time we got the records going, Sex Pistols had kind of fizzled out, so yeah. some of those groups didn't really last. Um, Damned went on for a while, Buzzcocks, I suppose. But I loved, I loved that music, um, and I loved the, the punk scene. I loved going to the shows, and I loved the look of it. But it, it kind of killed it for for the Curzel Flyers because we we made our money on the college circuit. Uh, we went out for pretty good money. And suddenly, you know, you've got the dam throwing custard pies at each other. And, and the, the people booking the shows, the social secretaries who are in the students' unions would, oh, let's have the damned, you know, they're half the price and twice the fun. So <laughs> that's, what, that's what kind of happens to us. But, but I was going to say that the record, the, when the records got going, the, the pub scene in London still existed. So that's where we kind of cut our teeth at those very same venues like the Hope and Anchor. Wolves nightclub and a few other venues, you know. And we got going in 78. So I don't know if you want to know what happened next, but I can tell you. Well, yeah, um, I do, but I guess I have a couple of questions. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Well, so the records, you were never really... Because I was wondering if the records were st- started out as maybe with within the punk scene... But you were more, but you were never really trying to to do that. No, no, we didn't. We didn't. We weren't in that scene. I mean, yeah. apart from anything else, I was quite a bit older than um, Sid Vicious and you know people like that. Yeah. Uh, by that stage, I was about thirty or getting on to thirty. I'd been playing in groups for fifteen odd years. Um, and uh, no, we didn't. We didn't aspire to be punk rock at all. But it's interesting how a lot of the music at that time translated when it crossed the Atlantic, because um, the US audience, obviously the US was a big market for, for music and record sales. And with respect, um, apart from certain pockets, you know, New York, LA, where you'd expect, so you've got magazines like Bomp and uh, the, the one that was in LA, the name I forget for the moment, but all those those New York Rocker, those kind of magazines, um, 
they were quite hip to everything. But the, the, the great mass of America, especially in middle America, were fairly slow to pick up on all these developments. So we tended to get bundled together, you know, it was, and I suppose the term new wave kind of came out of that, that thinking, uh, oh, it's not quite punk, it's a bit like punk, they've got short hair, and they play three minute songs, but they're a bit more melodic, so let's call it new wave, and then groups like the Cars came along, and as I say, Cheap Trick, um, you know, what was that other lot, The Knack, you know, My Sharona, there was a scene going on there, and we, we fell into that which was good for us. I mean, we didn't mind being bunched together. Um, so you, like you said, so both Big Star and Cheap Trick, like, so how did you, how did you get into Big Star at that point? Because they were really, they weren't very well known at all. Well, I, I was, I was, I had all, all my life been a fairly avid reader of uh, music media, you know, ju- um, rock weeklies or monthlies or whatever certainly what i was in those days and in 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 london in in the uk we had two or three very influential publications the main one i suppose was new musical express or nme was a weekly it had some really cool writers on it who who really had their ears to the ground and they would maybe go to new york or they visit cbg as they come back they'd write about television or or uh, Talking Heads, or, or Patti Smith, and um, I, I used to just follow it like mad, and just bought loads of records, went to gigs all the time. So I probably read about Big Star and Rolling Stone. I, they were Rolling Stone. I used to subscribe to fortnightly. Um, so I was reading about all that stuff, and 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 keen to hear the music. I buy the records would come out on, on import. So it'd be the, the American pressings would be in the, so in those days, an album, an LP uh, retail price in London was about two pounds. Uh, what's that? Three bucks or something. But for another pound, for three pounds or so, you could get an import. And so even the big acts, not not Bob, not Bob Dylan or, or anyone like that, but, but certainly bands like Cheap Trick, their albums would come out on import maybe two months before they got the official UK release. So I had to have it the minute it was available. So I was buying loads of these records, just listening to them. I also had a friend, Paul, um, Paul Bradshaw, his name is, who gave me a what I suppose kids today call the mixtapes, a cassette. You know, you put together a cassette, a C90 of about 25 or 30 um, tracks, Um I don't think the term power pop was used, but it was certainly that way. it was of that genre. Mm. And most of it I was aware of, but some of it I wasn't. And um, that tape I played to death and that, you know, I, I, I discovered quite a lot of other sort of more obscure uh, US groups from that little mixtape. So ear to the ground, you know, used yeah. to put myself about and... Um, no, which I, I kind of think is what it's all about, really. Um, being a fan, uh, first yeah. and foremost. Um, yeah. So that was my introduction to to those groups like Big Star and Cheap Trick. Yeah, ma- yeah, makes. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the first two Big Star albums were reissued as a double album in like '78, and that was in Europe, I think. Right, so. I don't remember that. I mean, I had them. I've still got them on Advent, Big Star, and Radio City. Wow. 
Um, I've still got the, the, the behind me here on the shelf, the 12-inch. I, I don't recall them being bundled. But uh, then, of course, Big Star 3 came out, which was obviously um, a tricky one, you know, yeah. <laughs> by, by comparison. Um, but the first two great records, loved them. But what happened with the records was that we'd been playing around the pubs in London in the middle of 78, and then we got a phone call from Stiff Records, who were going to be putting a new tour together, UK tour, eight weeks, and it was travelling, touring the UK by train. That was the gimmick. Uh, they hired a, a, rail, a railway uh, train from British Rail, booked it for six or eight weeks, and we went everywhere on the train. So five bands. Uh, we, we, we weren't on Stiff. Well, how it, what happened was John and I had written a song which was covered by Rachel Sweet, on her first album on Stiff. Uh, that's how we kind of got to know Rachel. And Stiff said, Rachel's looking for a backing group for the Stiff tour. Do you fancy doing it? So we said, well, we'll, we'll think about it. <laughs> sort of being a bit big time. And we phoned back and said, we'll do it if we can have our own spot on the show. You know, very, very pushy, really. And they said, sure. So every night on the Stiff Tour, we got to open with four of our own songs before Rachel came on. And then also on that tour, you had Jonah Louis, Reckless Eric, Lena Lovitch and Mickey Jupp. So that, there, was, there were five main Stiff acts, plus the records kind of trailing along. And um, we'd also written a song called Starry Eyes, which American listeners, some might know, because that was our best-known song, I guess. We'd recorded Starry Eyes, and halfway through the Stiff Tour, we had a couple of days off, and we went back to London and mixed it. And then Virgin Records were getting interested in us, and they eventually signed us. But they put Starry Eyes out as a kind of a faux 45 on our own label. You know, it was on the record company or something, which was a little sort of joke, but but it was actually, you know, pressed and distributed by Virgin. But also halfway through the tour, um, and there's a, an entourage of 50 people on this train with all the roadies and the crew and everything. Uh, we were all instruct. We had a day off, and we were all instructed to go home and get our passports. And you know, we got very excited about this. And next thing we know, we're going to New York to play uh, several nights at the Bottom Line Club. Uh, in the December of 78, which was, I'd never been to the States before, none of us had. It was incredibly exciting. And uh, when, by the time we got to New York in the December, uh, we had the copies of Starry, Starry Eyes 45, you know, pressed up. So we obviously took a box with us and started handing them out to everybody we met backstage at the bottom line. And some of them were radio people. And the next thing we know, WNEW in New York is playing Starry Eyes Over the Air as, a, as an import disc. And then one of the little record shops in Greenwich Village bought a small quantity and selling it. So that that's how the, you know, and then I think I did an interview with Rolling Stone. And it, it sort of gradually, it gradually gained momentum. Um, but that stiff tour was very, very handy for us, getting us to New York, you know. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell the story of what you remember about writing Starry Eyes because it's become such an iconic power Ooh. pop song at this point. Well, John and I, we had a rehearsal studio that we hired uh, in East London and the guys who were in the group 
who at that point were Phil Brown on bass and Hugh Gower on guitar. You know, the four of us would rehearse there. But John and I used to uh, get there early for get an hour ahead to sort of work on Although we could sit around at home writing songs with an acoustic guitar, there was nothing like getting a drum kit and an amplifier out. So the two of us would just spend an hour kicking ideas around. And this idea we had, well, actually, it started with the tune that John wrote. So usually the songs would start with the lyrics and I would give John the lyric and he'd put a tune to it. But this one was the other way around. He had a tune and we didn't have any words uh, it was very similar, and John, the late John, sadly, won't, won't mind me saying this, that it was quite similar to Eddie and the Hot Rods record, Do Anything You Want to Do, mm-hmm. which had been a recent hit, which was a great record. So we were kind of inspired, or John was inspired by Do Anything You Want to Do for the tune to Starry Eyes on the chords, I think. So he would sing and I would whack the drums and he'd go, you know, no words at all. We whacked it down onto a cassette tape and I took it home to put words to it. And I didn't know, you know, what it was going to be. I think we had some silly names for the song for a little while. Demoed it with silly lyrics, I think. I can't remember really. But around that time... um, we had a manager, our, I think it was our first manager, who was trying to get us a record deal. This is a while before we signed a Virgin. And I, because the Curzel Flyers had been on uh, CBS or Columbia, Columbia Epic, as it's known in America, um, when, when we, the Curzel Flyers broke up, as, as is normal, they, they retained uh, us individually uh, under contract should we go on to something new. And so so... CBS had the first option on the records and, in fact, put us in the studio to do demos. We did Tina Rama. We did about three or four songs for them, but they didn't they didn't pick us up. So I was out of the contract and Virgin was sniffing around. And the manager we had, get back to the manager, um, we, we had a little TV show lined up, an independent TV thing in London. We were on telly ages before we had a record deal. Uh, and the manager, at the crucial point of the negotiation, he went on vacation to France uh, for two weeks. And when he got back, he was no longer our manager um, because we we figured, uh, pro- perhaps a bit harsh, really, but that he, he sort of lacked commitment. You know? <laughs> yeah. we, we thought going on vacation was incredibly square in those days. You know? <laughs> he probably had family. I mean, now I, I'd go on vacation, you know, uh-huh. but. <laughs> but but but, we, but anyway, he went on vacation, and um, that so that bit in it, while you were lost in France, he was stranded in the British Isles, left to fall apart amongst the passports and the files. That was me, you know, imagining his office where he was supposed to be. All our contracts were in there, and but but the minute that, that Virgin wanted to talk, I think it was Virgin. Was, or maybe it was getting out of the CBS deal. I can't remember. Anyway, some crucial point in the in the in the business side of things. Off you went, and when you came back, we were gone. So that whole lyric was really about uh, that experience. A bit, a bit juvenile, really, but that's kind of you've got to you've got to kind of put that head on to write those kind of songs. You've got to feel a bit bitter and twisted for half an hour, you know, to give you the angst to write. Get me out of your starry eyes and be on your way. You know, and he was gone. Then we found out. Then we got our second manager, but that's a whole other story. 
so that's how that song came about yeah anything works for inspiration right that's what you as long as you you've got some seed (laughs) so most of those record songs you did start with the, the lyrics but john was very adept at um putting uh terrific melodies you know and also he's very good at arranging harmonies and the other guys were good players as well we were a good little group for a year or two you know after the stiff tour we were now signed to virgin and we're going to make our first album and um we don't get todd rundgren and we don't get tom Werman, but we do get mutt langer um who who's, went on to become one of the most famous producers in the world he just when he met us he just finished um that huge album by well, what's that heavy metal group he produced? ACD, yeah, ACD, yeah, the the big one that broke that broke them through in seventy eight, seventy nine. Highway to Hell. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he just he just not really our cup of tea. Although we had, I we in fact, ACD when they first came to London, ACD played on what was then the pub rock circuit, and they had a residency at this tiny pub in Kensington. I saw them there. This is about maybe around the time their first record came out, and they've got a bit of a following, but they come over from Australia. But anyway, uh, Matt had produced um, ACDC, and then he'd moved on to us. And um, he went in the stu- we went in the studio with him, and we started recording what became our first album, the records it was called in the States here. We called it, um, what did we call it? We called it something else. We, uh, in bed. Yeah, that's right. Um, thank you. And... Um, <laughs> Matt, Matt um, was only going to cut, produce, he was going to be the, the, what you might call the executive producer, but he'd only be hands-on in the studio on four songs, and he would select the four, he presumably selected the four he thought would be potential 45s, and then his engineer, a guy called Tim Freeze-Green, who, who I knew anyway because he'd engineered some of the Curse of Flyers stuff a couple of years later, to, uh, Tim kind of took over on production on the other seven or eight songs but it was a good team and we were in the studio for it seemed like ages i mean i suppose it went on over six weeks eight weeks or something of you know overdubbing mixing the whole bit we recorded a single uh, rock and roll love letter copy cover of the uh, tim tim moore song great song um, which the Bay City Rollers had also yeah. had a hit with, I believe, in the States. Um, we uh, that, that, They put that out as a 45, but it bombed, so it was taken off the album. Uh, but Mutt did get involved in start a remake of Starry Eyes, which is a different recording to the one on the 45. <laughs>
In fact, on the UK Shades in Bed album is the remake, but for the American, the records album, they put the original on, as you probably you might know that. Mm-hmm. Um, Tina Rama, uh, Affection Rejected was another one. Anyway, Mutt did a few songs and Tim did the remainder. skilled in the studio Tim they were both they both were then we get an offer to tour the UK opening for the jam now you probably I mean I suppose the jam in a way fall into this musical style in a way I mean they were influenced I guess by the who very very melodic kind of up-tempo poppy rock songs they were terrific Um, you know we did a lot of dates with them I'm jumping the gun a bit here but then Suddenly, we're, we get our first U, uh, U.S. tour crops up. You know, the album's coming out in America. And hey-ho, boys, you're going to the USA for eight weeks. That was fantastic. And just wonderful experience, really. And the records, you know, the single full 45 of Starry Eyes started going up the chart in music. Oh, was it Cashbox and Billboard and all that? Um and the radio stations were playing it. And the album got a 41 on the billboard, which doesn't sound very good, but it's not bad for a debut. There, there is a very interesting story about records that get to 41, but not save that for another day. <laughs> um, there are a lot of them, by the way. Um, anyway, oh, because we, it's just outside the top 40, is that? Yeah, the top 40 is the, is the, is the um, what you might call the, the ambition, isn't it, to yeah. reach the that's the golden top 40. It doesn't really matter if you've got the 39 or six top 40. And if you can't be top 40, you're kind of not in the game. And (laughs) anyway, moving swiftly on. um, (laughs) um, We loved, you know, we absolutely loved playing in the USA. We went coast to coast. We played, we worked nearly every night. We did, it was fantastic. We did, um, what had happened was Virgin Records were um, on a new distribution deal with Atlantic, and our LP was the first one released under that pact. So consequently, we got huge push. I mean, every day, I'm not exaggerating, every day would consist of at least 
apart from a show, a sound check and a show, four days out of five would be a show. Uh, every day would consist of at least two radio station visits, uh, local radio, at least two local um, press interviews, at least one phoner with Australia or somewhere, and at least one in-store appearance where we go and sign, sign stuff and meet fans every day. It was relentless and it was just fantastic. And we felt we, we were getting the real, the real push, you know, so far, so good as it were. And that was that. Then what happened? We came back to the UK and there'd been a few ups and downs on the tour personnel wise. Um, but hey, you know, it was, band that stays together, plays together, whatever the expression is. Um, everything was good. We got a European tour with Robert Palmer, opening for Robert Palmer, which was very good, except that halfway through the tour, he's one member of his family got ill and uh, he had to abandon the tour and go back to the Bahamas or wherever he lived. So that we only did about four or six dates in Sweden, no, um, Netherlands, I think. We, we were meant to go to Germany anyway so but during that tour there was a bit of a bit of a, uh, a rub really between Hugh the guitar player and the rest of the group um, which I won't go into but basically uh, when we came back from the Robert Palmer tour um, uh, Hugh left the group maybe it was a mistake I don't know he was such a great guitar player really really good what happens with, with, well, it's the classic, isn't it? What happens with groups is, I mean, th there's hardly any groups in the world, a four-piece or five-piece groups, that have more than two songwriters. You know, I'm talking now about people who can actually sit down and write a tune and finish it and present it and it gets recorded. Right. You know, the Beatles had three. I mean, <laughs> that was taking the mickey a bit, really, three songwriters <laughs> but you very rarely get two people and so what tends to happen is is those who, who who aren't natural songwriters either just kind of suck it up and shrug their shoulders and hope to get something of theirs recorded which does happen or they or they want to contest the the, the position and and you know anyway that, that without going into detail i think you know what i mean and yeah. and that story you know, of nearly every four-piece rock band in the world until groups like, I believe, I don't know for fact, but R.E.M. and U2 split the dosh four ways, you know. Yeah. And, and that's why U2 are probably still together and R.E.M.'s still well together for a long time. And, um, and uh, so people can't bitch about, Oh, the songwriters are making all the money, which is kind of unfair because you've got to go out on the <laughs> making the records. One thing when you go out, go out on an American tour for eight weeks, it's a lot of work. And if you're only getting, you know, 100 bucks a day or whatever the run rate was, and the songwriters are getting, you know, royalties, it creates an imbalance within the group. But hey, that's what happened, you know. Okay, so now Virgin pick up their uh, option for album number two. John and I have written a bunch of songs which become an album called Crashes. We don't have a lead guitarist, so we go into the rehearsals with a friend of ours called Barry Martin, who is a late member of the Coastal Flyers also, 
and we routine 10 or a dozen songs for a few weeks uh and then virgin oh in we on the big american tour we we were in toronto we're hanging out with an, uh, a canadian girl group called the beagles uh, mm-hmm. sort of friends and uh, they were being produced by a guy called Craig Leon and I knew the name Craig Leon because he produced um, the early albums by Moon Martin who I liked right. uh, yeah. and uh, we met Moon uh, sorry I didn't meet Moon we met Craig in Toronto and he expressed interest so he came over to London and Virgin hired him to produce the Crashes album so we were looking for a lead. Barry wasn't going to join the group full time. So we're looking for a lead guitarist slash harmony singer. And I think Craig, I can't remember. He said, well, this Jude Cole guy is pretty good. I'd seen Jude in Moon Martin's band in London the previous year at the Marquee Club. Uh, and I remembered him and God, I thought he was great. He was, he was 19 at the time. 19 we we were about well, i was about 30 at the time the rest of the guys were in their late 20s and this guy was sort of 10 years younger uh anyway he got on a plane came to london we did a few rehearsals he was fantastic so he he joined the sessions with craig that for this crashes album um he we'd written all the songs i mean there would have been three songwriters in the group that completely scotch what I just said a minute ago because Jude's a great songwriter but the songs have been written so Jude played played guitar overdub solos and did the harmonies with John just beautiful um, and um, that was good and we got on really well with Jude then the crashes is scheduled for release and the next American tour is set up 1980 whereas our first album Shades in Bed slash The Records has been our first album under the Virgin Records Atlantic Pact. Twelve months later, that business arrangement had, had f- broken down. And Crashes was, I believe, the last album under the Virgin Atlantic Pact. So whereas in the previous year we were doing, you know, six interviews a day and an in-store and all the rest of it, 
suddenly, you know, we're doing like seven interviews in five weeks. I mean, there was nothing. There was hardly any promotion. You know, the in the first time when we get when we get off the plane at JFK, there's the two limos to meet us. <laughs> laid on by the record company and we get to the we come into town and we pull up outside the old Gramercy Park Hotel and there's people on the sidewalk asking for autographs I mean my I'm afraid my cynic ometer did go off when I saw that I thought it was a bit of a setup but hey it made us feel good you know um a year later we get to JFK and we put on the little bus you know that takes you from the terminal to the to the station uh, it's like complete opposite you know but you know so the trip um, was good you, you know but but anyway the the, the, the dream was I mean Virgin had a go but they didn't have they didn't have the artillery in place that they'd had the previous year are you implying that the record company would hire people to ask you for autographs no sure <laughs> Sure, why, why, That's why hilarious. Wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? You know, give him a bag of popcorn and a yeah. Coca-Cola. <laughs> hey, you know, some kid on the pavement. Hey, you doing anything? Stand here. And when this car pulls up and these four limeys get out, run up to them and ask them to sign your, you know, your newspaper or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Fantastic though, isn't it? Isn't it just? Isn't it just great? All this. All this stuff, you know, yeah. so, I find it so inspiring. <laughs> yes, so so the the crashes the crashes tour it was okay. I mean, we did pretty good business at the shows because we still had the the residual uh, fan fandom, uh, you know, appreciation from the starry eyes of the previous year. So the the, the, the ticket the, the gates were good. I mean, we were doing good business, but the promotion. Uh, you know, the radio station, we did a handful. I mean, some of the radio stations and local press we got, I, I got myself because I'd kept notes the previous year of, you know, who the DJ was at W, whatever it was, and, and the local, because I made friends with some of these, some of these local writers. They were great, they were fans, you know, and they were good guys and would exchange postcards and things. So, but anyway, um, we did the tour. Uh, the tour wound up in Chicago. We played Chicago Fest, which is a was then an annual sort of four day event where big big. I think we were on. The, I think Alice Cooper headlined the night afternoon we were on. I think I didn't see him play, but we stayed at the hotel Holiday Inn. I think opposite the the uh, the, the venue in Chicago. It's changed now, by the way. I was was down there a couple of years back and. I was trying to find the place where the Chicago Fest took place, but it's been covered with kind of, I don't know, condominiums and cafes and things. But anyway, what happened, we were so fed up after this tour finished in Chicago because they cut the tour sh short by a couple of weeks. We were due to go out the coast and we didn't go. And uh, I think I may have redecorated my hotel room um, after a couple of, <laughs> after a couple of uh, sherbets. <laughs> but um, anyway... It was it was the end, and, and Jude, uh, who lived in where did Jude live then? L.A. I think he went back home to L.A. We went back to London, and that was pretty much the end, you know, of the records, except for the fact that Virgin Records, bless them, picked up their option for yet a, another album, a third album, which was unheard of, but they did. So we stayed together a little longer. Yeah, and you, and you got a, a singer. 
like the lead singer, right? Oh, we well, yeah, well, Chris, lovely guy, um, good singer, um, does a good uh, Robin Zander kind of vocal type vocal. We were under pressure, you know. When when things don't work out, people look around for reasons, don't they? They look around. Oh well, if you if, if only you know if only that had been the single, or if only you hadn't have done that show in Central Park with the cars, or if only you had a front man. And this was the thing. Get a front man, you'll be stars. You know, so we, yeah. I don't know, the agent or the record company or the public, somebody, our manager, I don't know, somebody's saying get a front man. So we did. And, um, you know, we tried it. We made the album. The songs on that are not, I don't think, very, very strong. And, and if you listen to the, the words, if you can bear to, um, <laughs> they were all kind of a bit t- pissed, pissed and bitter and twisted and mm. oh, poor, oh, poor us, you know, poor, poor me, you know. But, but you know, that was the inspiration behind the songs. A couple of okay songs on there, but it wasn't as strong as the previous two. to find that record <laughs> I like i i never had i never found it in a record store for years and years you know well, it was what what happened was there was no major distribution deal anymore for well certainly for us i don't know about virgin record i think they went on to i don't know after that i don't know who they went on to warners i can't remember but somebody but they also by that point had their own little setup in new york um virgin something or other and so they had a little bit of distribution infrastructure there so they pressed up i don't know a few thousand put it out themselves and i years later um in the in the, what, the 90s i i licensed um i set up a re- little record label and licensed those album three albums from virgin and put them out on compact disc I think I've got one copy left of um, In For A Spin, <laughs> but I, I think I, I pressed up a very cautious 500 <laughs> units. I think I sold most of them. But anyway, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't a very strong record. And, and then we disbanded. What happened personally to me was around the time we were finishing up making that record, I get a call from Jake Riviera, formerly of Stiff Records, now managing, of course, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, and many other people. And he asked me to come and work 
at his uh, business uh, looking after Carleen Carter, who was then Nick's wife, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I became Carleen Carter's tour manager, (laughs) 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 which was a fantastic experience, a fantastic eye-opener. As I said, I didn't think that, I didn't think that being uh, uh, well. Actually, Drake said, well, "How would you like to be Carlin's manager?" <laughs> I thought, "Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get to to make any big business decisions or, or or anything like that." I ended up driving the bus, actually. But <laughs> but 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 one night I did sit around a dinner table of eight people with Johnny Cash right. and June Carter in Edinburgh. Yeah, and. It was funny. I mean, I'm going off on a tangent now. We're in this crowded, we're in this crowded dining room in this nice hotel in Edinburgh, having dinner. And there's Cash, and Cash is sitting, kind of. I mean, quite often with 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 stars, you know, recognisable stars. When you go in a restaurant with them, they always want to sit with their back to the room. I don't know if you've. Ever, it's pretty pretty. It does happen, you know, because they don't want to be people gawping at them all the time. But right. but we were on a big circular table and Johnny sat, it was a corner table and Johnny sat in the corner so he could survey the entire room and two or three tables away was Johnny Cash's band or about five of them and they were having a good old <laughs> drink <laughs> up and they were being incredibly noisy. <laughs> and uh, this is a fairly quiet restaurant and uh, I'll never forget Johnny Cash stood up <laughs> from his seat and he looked over the room across the room at these five guys and he just stood there for about five or ten seconds and he just looked at them and they completely went quiet and carried on not making any more then he just sat back down again it was the coolest thing (laughs) so so obviously I, 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 I got a lot of interesting experiences working with Carleen and with that whole organization you know it's really good fun for two or three years anyway that was and then the records we did um we did try and reform once or twice in the 80s or 90s i think 90s we did a couple of shows but it wasn't really there anymore you know for us we rehearsed a lot and worked a set up and you can imagine we starry eyes obviously and a couple of bird songs i seem to recall but anyway um that was the story of the records, really. And John went to live in in, in America, and um, he he called me up one day and said, "Look, you know, there's still a lot of uh, appetite for the records over here, um, and I've been doing some solo shows, acoustic singing now. Songs are great, you know." He said, "Do you mind if I go out as the records with with some other musicians?" I said. He said, oh, actually, I'll call it John Wicks on the records so as to sort of differentiate. I said, fine. And he did until, sadly, died a couple of years ago. But through the 90s and noughties, he, he did a fair bit of work putting, you know, keeping the name alive, as it were, mainly on the West Coast, I think. And I went, you know, went over there two or three times, you know, had dinner with him. And this was more recently. And, and uh, yeah, John was a great guy. Yeah. And Phil, Phil had died as well. So, you know, there we are. 